So today we carry on in our series, Convincing Proofs. And we want to, last, last week, Bevan took us through the resurrection as, um, as recreation. It's the promise of making things new. And inside the resurrection is that. And the series idea we get for those who haven't been with us in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, it says about Jesus after his suffering, namely in he died, he presented himself to the disciples and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So today we want to look at another one of the implications of the resurrection, namely that of victory. Italian-American preacher and actually a sociology professor, Tony Campolo, tells of an Easter service in his home church in inner Philadelphia, which was an African-American church, but he was an Italian-American, but it ended up in this church. And uh, he said because his parents had donated the offering bags, he wasn't about to leave the church when all the other white people did when the inner city of Philadelphia changed. And so there he was. And by Easter tradition, there was a hierarchy of preachers that used to preach on Good Friday. One sermon after another, seven sermons in a row. That was the tradition. And the congregation sat there. And, uh, and, and of course, the preachers wouldn't admit it. But, you know, there was a little bit of a competition, you know, like who's going to like really smash it out the park. And, uh, and Tony was second last. It was like a pecking order. And Tony was second last, and the senior pastor was going to stand up and preach after him. And Tony said, man, I was good that day. Man, the people were amening. They were hallelujahing. They were going for it. I was good that I was so good, I was wanting to take notes on me. And, uh, and so I sat down next to my senior pastor, and I tapped him on the shoulder and kind of gave him that look that said, you go on and beat that. And he looked at me and he said, boy, he said, like, I'm like nearly 40 years old. But he said, boy, that was good. But just you wait and see. (laughs) So uh, as the congregation was still cheering, the old man stood up in the pulpit and said, it's Friday. Jesus' broken body is lying cold and dead in the tomb. But it's Friday. And Sundays are coming. It's Friday. And the disciples are trembling and are confused. But it's Friday. And Sundays are coming. It's Friday. And the rulers and the powers think that Jesus is gone, dead, and forgotten. But it's Friday. And Sundays are coming. It's Friday, and the devil himself thinks he's killed the Lord of life. But it's just Friday, and Sundays are coming. And Tony Campolo says that for nearly an hour, this old pastor poured out couplet after couplet, telling people it's Friday, and we live, as it were, sometimes thinking it's still Friday. Never in his life had he heard, uh, uh, you know, in an African-American church, and he had been in plenty, Tony experienced such energy and power and delight from the congregation. And then the pastor moved to their circumstances, and he says, your landlord is threatening you, and you're facing eviction, but it's Friday, and Sundays are coming. 
and your child is breaking your heart with your choices. It was their choices, and hell is laughing at you. But it's just Friday, and Sundays are coming. Eventually, the old man just stood up in front of the church and shouted, "It's Friday!" And everyone shouted back, "And Sundays are coming." <laughs> You see, there's no question that the resurrection carries victory. The resurrection is this amazing declaration of victory. Victory over death, that seems logical. Victory over sin and victory over the devil himself. But we must not make a mistake of confusing theology with experience. You see, the disciples in the disciples' experience... When they were there on Good Friday, make no mistake, the disciples thought, this is it. It's over. This is the worst possible thing that could happen. This is a defeat. It's finished. We're done. Their hopes, their faith had come crashing down as Jesus died on the cross. And as we've seen in these last weeks, Something changed so monumentally, so dramatically when they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And Jesus appears to them and gives them many convincing proofs that he's alive. But we need to understand this. The resurrection, although it was experienced like this for the disciples, (laughs) Jesus has to explain to them in the kingdom of God. The resurrection is not a victory after the defeat of the cross. Not at all. And today we're going to do a short topical study because we're going to jump through a lot of passages uh, where, we, where we will look and see that Jesus was certainly not defeated on the cross. In fact, Jesus was defeating his enemies. He was defeating even death itself. On the cross. And so Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 says, He, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion, meaning the kingdom, the rule, the domination of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, rescue, another image for the, for the work on the cross, the forgiveness of sins. So the first point this morning is. The resurrection is a victory of which the cross is an integral part. The resurrection is a victory of which the cross is an integral part. Yes, the resurrection is absolutely uh, necessary. Without the resurrection, we'd have no faith. But we need to understand that the two are held together. In fact, when um, Pastor Terran comes next week, he's going to show us something of the idea in John's gospel of Jesus being lifted up. And Jesus explains that refers to Jesus on the cross. Jesus being lifted up is the resurrection. Jesus being lifted up is the ascension that we're getting to in a couple of weeks time. And Jesus being lifted up is his glorification and celebration and worship that he receives in heaven. And he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to him. And the Bible holds all those ideas together in the exaltation of Jesus, including his death on the cross. So to understand this, we go back to Genesis 3, when Eve and Adam fell into sin because they listened to the lies and the half-truths of the serpent Satan himself. 
And Bevan explained how devastating that moment was, the defeat that defined the rest of the human history until the cross. You see, in the garden, Satan, who is this finite, created spirit being, he's not eternal, he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, he's finite, he's created, he's very powerful, but he is not the opposite of God. He embodies evil and rebellion against God, and he deceives these image bearers of God, Eve and Adam, into surrendering what we saw in Genesis 1 and Bevan showed us, their birthright of authority to rule and bless creation as God's representatives on the earth. And we saw last week how the garden was this temple, a place of encounter, of fellowship, of worship, and yes, of authority, because in the temple there's always a throne. A temple is always a place of dominion. And Zion is a place from which God rules, for example. So this week we learn that Eden in self, as a temple, was a place of good government, from which the rule of God, through his image bearers, Adam and Eve and their offspring, would rule the world for God and multiply uh, to fill the earth and bless it through them. And so, hear me here. God's kingdom, his rule, his will from heaven was to be done on earth, sounds like the Lord's prayer, through willing and obedient people. That's the plan from Genesis 1. Now, in ancient times, rulers, once they'd conquered territory, they would set up an image, an icon of themselves. They would put something there that told the people in that area, this is the one, this thing represents the one who is in charge. So when God puts Adam and Eve as his image bearers in the garden, it's a declaration to the rest of all creation. These are the ones that will have authority to rule in my name, on my behalf, and accomplish my will on the earth as I have my will done in heaven. And so when the Lord God put them there, he was telling the world... This is his world. This was his domain. This is his kingdom. He is ruling through his image bearers. Now, Psalm 24 makes it very clear that even if he didn't have them, he still owns it all. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Why? Because he made it. His hands formed the dry land. He, he established it upon the waters. But he's got like this double claim through his image bearers. And so what happened when they listened to the lies of the devil the authority to rule and govern the earth and exercise dominion was surrendered to the devil. Their birthright, as it were. Now, some of us know the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older brother. His birthright was to, as it were, carry the lineage and the line and the name of his family and to represent his father Isaac. But he sold his birthright. He forfeited his birthright. He was careless with his birthright. And in a sense, the birthright of humankind was forfeited in that garden. And what do we find? Deception leads to, de to sin, which led to death, which led to the dominion of darkness. Sin, death, the devil and his demons have usurped the rightful authority. And now, quite literally, it's war. The book of Revelation has pictures that remind us of this.
and this this defeat in the garden has devastating casualties. And we learned some of them last week. But it's sin. It's demonization. It's broken relationships. Even the truth itself is a casualty of this war until the cross. And the Bible is very clear that there's a turning point in the battle. And that turning point is when Jesus goes to the cross. And the resurrection then proclaims and demonstrates the victory of Jesus And the victory was won on the cross. So Colossians 2, for example, says this, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Sounds like resurrection. What had he done? He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. We were liable. We'd messed up. Which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. How? nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle. We would think that the the public spectacle of the cross is the broken, disfigured, naked body of Jesus. (laughs) In the theology of the New Testament, the public spectacle of the cross is evil itself, is dying there on that cross. Its power is being broken. Why? Because Jesus is taking sin into himself and he is cancelling its power by cancelling your liability and your legal indebtedness. And so this is the statement it finishes, triumphing over them by the cross. See, the victory that we see in the resurrection, having been raised with Christ, God made you alive with Christ, is actually won on the cross. Listen to Revelation 12. talks in a different language, different imagery. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, verse 10, Now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority, you know, the rule and power, the authority, the right to rule of his Messiah. Uh, You know, there it is. But then he says this, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Who's that? It's, of course, the devil. He is the one who wants to keep you condemned and legally liable. How did they win? They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. When Jesus died on the cross, it's very clear. That's where the triumph was. By the word of their testimony and that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So point number one. Goodness me, where, where was it? The resurrection is, is, is a victory of which the cross is an integral part. Point number two, Jesus restores our authority to reveal and represent God. You see, it's not just our indebtedness that is gone, but it's the enemy's power to take that birthright to reveal and represent God and bring his will on earth as in heaven that has been restored. You see, Jesus as Messiah, the anointed King Christ, is God who becomes human. How does he do this? He, without surrendering his divine nature, I mean, he was always and always will be God, let's be very clear. He lays down in Hebrews 2 and in Luke and the gospel, we see this, the divine advantages that would have kept him from being truly human. And so Hebrews 2 is able to say that he was fully human like us in every way except without sin. 
Now, I haven't got time to read these scriptures. I'm going to just tell you a bit about them. But he, he never surrendered his birthright. And according then to Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, what we have is a new kind of Adam. We have a second Adam. We have a better Adam. And what Paul explains is that in the first Adam, who's a picture of the one to come, everyone died because of the choices he made. And in the second Adam, everyone gets to live because of the choices he makes. And then it's very clear in this. He says, and everyone gets to reign in life. In other words, our authority to rule and reign has been restored. You see, how did that happen? Jesus never lost his authority to represent and reveal God on the earth. He was bearing his image even as a man, blessing and ordering creation. Jesus was constantly bringing God's will on earth as in heaven. He treated all sickness, demonization, brokenness, sin as enemies to be confronted and taken down. It was war (laughs) because he was at war with an enemy. Those things belong to another kingdom. And in himself, of course, Jesus didn't need to die for himself. He didn't even need to die to be able to heal others or deliver others. Why? Because he had that birthright. Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die to cancel our liability and our indebtedness so that our authority to reveal and represent God could be restored. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Do you realize how significant that is? Jesus wants you to be restored to your role. And so Jesus does this. He fulfilled. Well, let's look at the logic. The devil held the power of death over people because their sin had broken the law. The devil held the power of death over people because their sin had broken the law. Jesus fulfills the law, atones for sin, redeems the people, conquers death and defeats the devil all in reverse through the cross into the resurrection. That's the logic. That's the logic. And Paul repeats this logic time and time again. And as I just shown you, it's also there, for example, in John's writing in the book of Revelation. So Romans 5, 17, for if by the trespass of one man, Death reigned. Look at that dominion word, that that kingdom word. Death reigned through one man. How much more will those, notice this, death now no longer impersonal, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. We have a new Adam. In Adam, all died. In Jesus, everyone can live and reign. So our task, number three, and let me wrap up, is to reclaim our birthright and reign in life. We are called to live out of Jesus' death, resurrection, victory and bring God's will from heaven to earth every day. How? I'm so glad you asked and are desperate to know. If you think about it, maybe let's have an answer. You're going to have to shout out loud and maybe drop your mask so that I can hear you. In an earthly sense, when a victory, when a battle has been fought and a victory has been won, what happens next? How do you live out that victory? What needs to happen? We, we celebrate it. 
we rejoice. Think of a conquered territory and there's a whole bunch of people. Sorry? You, you, you proclaim it and you claim it. You actually speak it out so that there is in that territory a new legal force. You see, if you went, you know, fought a fight, but never told anyone there's a new king on the block, nothing changes. <laughs> Proclamation is a major part of the victory of God. The victors proclaim victory. They tell the other role players that they've obtained a victory and they have the right of governing that territory. That's a massive issue. Secondly, you enact it. In other words, you live accordingly. Think about it. If we believe that Jesus truly conquered death for us, dot, dot, dot. I want to tell you this. The most compelling evidence, and it's, and it's part of what we've already seen in the series, in the world today that Jesus has conquered death is a church that's not afraid to follow Jesus to the cross and even die. The world has no answer for a church that believes in resurrection power and is unafraid of death. That's how you enact it. Now you're thinking martyrdom and all that kind of stuff. The word for witness is the word that we also translate martyr in, in the Greek. And it's a complex word, and it's a many-layered word. And it doesn't always just mean that you're going to die in a pool of blood somewhere. It means that you continue to proclaim and enact and live out this. And we are witnesses, says Jesus, of his death and resurrection. But a more daily example might be people like Bernadette, our urban missionary, or Cindy, my own wife. Their ministry, for example, takes them daily into potentially dangerous environments. Now, they need to keep informed and they need to stay careful. And there are reasons sometimes for concern. But one of the things Cindy and I have spoken about is that she goes into some of those spaces. I mean, this week she was driving to the island next to the N2. And she was taking in supplies for the holiday club leader teams that were there. And there she is, this white woman driving through the townships all by herself, going into who knows where. And we've had to have a chat about this. And although she is legitimately careful, she is unafraid. And that is a choice that she makes to go there. Why? Because she believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And she is determined to enact the resurrection of Jesus where she goes in her everyday life. She doesn't have to be a martyr to live out and enact the resurrection. She just has to live as though it's true that Jesus is the Lord of life and she is in his hands and she's trusting him for whatever may come her way. I say again, the most compelling evidence in the world today that Jesus has conquered death is a church that's unafraid to die. And you proclaim the victory and you enact the victory and in battle terms, and you need to listen to me really carefully now, we must enforce the victory. We deal with the pockets of resistance that remain. We deal with those spirits and enemies and attitudes and lies that although objectively defeated on the cross, want to subvert the rule of our king. 
and they have not disappeared yet. They're still around. And so there's a sense in which the battle is very real. And so we need to enforce the victory, but I need to be very clear. How do we enforce the victory? Write this down. In fact, burn it in your hearts and minds. Our means to sustain victory must always remain the exact same power that gave us the victory. I'm going to explain that. Our means to sustain victory must always be the exact same means that gave us the victory. How did Jesus gain that victory? Humility, purity. He fulfilled the law. Self-sacrifice. The desire to save and to make possible the rule and reign of others. Philippians 2 describes it so well about Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be used and exploited for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's an ancient, ancient Christian hymn. You can know that you're dealing with the real Jesus and that you are enforcing the victory of the real Jesus when you're willing to fight the way he did and humble yourself and lay down your life for the sake of others. Greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends. Satan, in contrast, is always looking for and sadly finds many, many anti-messiahs. Antichrists. How do you know you're dealing with an antichrist? They are humans who set themselves up to be God. <laughs> in the real Messiah, we have the one true God who once in all time and eternity becomes human that he might save us. And in the antichrist, we have hundreds of humans who take to themselves the rights of of rule that belong to God alone and seek to control and exercise dominion over others for their own glory. How different the real Messiah. No curses, no threats. He blessed with life and healing. And even as he conquered death, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. How different when we follow his path, how different when we live and love like him, how different when we lay down our lives as he did. You see, if we want to know resurrection power, we too walk the way of the cross. If we want to reign as Jesus reigned, it's because we're unafraid to lay down our lives. And can I say to the baptism candidates, your baptism represents what happened to you on the day you put your faith in Jesus. Jesus came and took you and you went, you died with him. And the Bible explains that symbolically you rise to a new life with him. Because that's what Jesus has done for you. But now, every single day after this baptism, you are going to relive what you have enacted. And every single day you're going to say, Jesus, I trust you enough to do things your way. That's what my baptism means. I trust you. I believe you. And I will follow you again and again into your obedience in the water. 
so that I might know the power of the life that raises me out of that. Does that make sense to you? Your baptism proclaims and speaks of what Jesus has done for you. And so for some of us, we need to learn that against this love and disobedience, the enemy has no defense. The devil has got no defense. He's got no weapons that he can form that can possibly work against someone who chooses the way of Jesus. Because he can threaten you with death and you go, I'm unafraid. Death's already lost. So Paul says, death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? No, 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 no. You see, against this love, the enemy has no weapon and he has no defense. And he, and he wants us to take his weapons. He wants us to take shame and condemnation and anger and resentment. And even if we choose a good cause, he doesn't care. He just wants us to use his weapons to fight. But he has no power against someone who says, in the name of Jesus, I'll be different to you. The devil doesn't worry if you're seemingly more powerful than him, even in a given moment. The thing he's terrified of, and baptism candidates, I want to bless you to be exactly this, is to be completely different to him. (laughs) He's got no power against someone who chooses to follow Jesus and be different from him. Let's pray together. They sang at my own baptism, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Father, we want to thank you that in all eternity you decided to save us, to rescue us, and to make us your own. And today we want to thank you that we get to witness some more of our family who stand before us to say, this is what I've decided. This is what I do. Lord, we thank you that we see in them the victory of Jesus. We thank you that we see modeled in their obedience the power of new life, even when things seem dead. Lord, we thank you that there isn't an economy that when the kingdom comes cannot live again. There isn't a community so broken that when the kingdom comes cannot be healed. There isn't a family that's messed up so badly that when the kingdom comes it cannot live again. And we say to love, live again. We say to shalom, live again. We say to all the things that the enemy seeks to steal, come back to life And live again in Jesus' name. Father, thank you for the victory of your indestructible life in Jesus. Amen.